From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. By all accounts, there is an obesity epidemic in this country, with more than one-third of all adults falling into that category. And while a lot of people struggle to lose weight, researchers are working on more effective weight loss therapies. Those who get the balloon lost three times the weight. It's about 15% of the total body weight. Uh, Equate that to pounds, about 30 to 40 pounds within the six-month period. We'll have the latest on intragastric balloon therapy. Also on the program, surgery and medications are only part of the weight loss solution. Mental preparation also plays a key role. We'll find out why. And low testosterone isn't just a men's health problem. Women can also have low T. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the CDC, more than one-third of adults in this country, that's more than 78 million people, are obese. And that's defined by a body mass index of 30 or greater. Now, that puts these people at increased risk for a number of serious problems, health problems, including heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, and certain cancers. If you're struggling with obesity, you may have tried a number of weight loss methods, including behavior behavior change, and even surgery. Now, there is a minimally invasive procedure using a newly approved device that may hold promise for people who've been unable to lose a lot of weight no matter how or what they try. The approach uses a special balloon that's placed in the stomach temporarily. Wow. Here to explain this new treatment for obesity is Dr. Barham Abudaya. Dr. Abudaya is a gastroenterologist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Abudaya. It's great to meet you. Tom and uh, Tracy, thank you so much for the invitation to discuss this exciting new procedure. Boy, exciting to say the least, but it does make a lot of sense. I mean, if you put a balloon in the stomach, there's not as much room for food. Absolutely. So, as you stated, obesity is a huge problem here in the United States, and currently the tools that we're having to manage obesity are limited. So, on one end, we have lifestyle interventions, which uh, are important, but they're not sufficient to produce significant or sustained weight loss. On the complete other end of the spectrum, we have bariatric surgery, which works and produces significant and durable results, but it's surgery. You cannot apply surgery to 78 millions that you just quoted. It's big-time surgery, isn't it? It's big-time surgery, and it has its own risk and it's on cost. The balloon is this bridge in between lifestyle intervention and surgical intervention where it offers people with mild to moderate obesity a new way to lose significant weight and sustain it. How does it work? Are you really just putting a balloon in someone's stomach? It's really we're just putting a balloon in someone's stomach. Wow. It's an outpatient procedure. It takes about 15 to 20 minutes. You come to the endoscopy unit. The balloon is guided uh, through the next to an endoscope, which is a camera that visualizes the esophagus and the stomach. Once in the stomach, the balloon is inflated to about about 600 mLs of, uh, of saline. Which so you is could probably stomach. make the balloon as big as you want it, right, depending Absolutely. on the size of the stomach? Absolutely. We could. Uh, there's a range of filling volumes between 400 and 700, and we usually gauge it based on the patient size and, and the, the stomach. Patient sedated? Patient sedated with, uh, with, with uh, conscious sedation uh, for the placement. The so balloon. you're not completely out, in other words? You're, you're, you're comfortable. You're, you're not going to remember anything, but you're not, you're not under general anesthesia for this. How long do you have this balloon in your stomach? So the balloon stays in the stomach for six months. Within the six months, most of the weight loss is happening. And the way it works, which we studied this extensively at the Mayo Clinic, it does two things. One, number one, it stimulates the receptors in the stomach to indicate satiety. And 
satiation. Uh, number two, it slows down the uh, gastric emptying. So food is not emptying through the stomach quickly. It sits in the stomach, stimulates these mechanical and chemical receptors, and give you a sensation of satiation for longer periods of time than before the balloon. Makes you feel like you're full. Makes you feel like you're full for a very long time. So, so 15 minutes, and when you're done, you can go have a small hot fudge sundae <laughs> to celebrate. But why, why take it out then? If it's okay to have it in there for six months, why can't you just leave it in there indefinitely? Yeah. It's uh, The stomach is a very smart organ. It's, uh, it accommodates to the balloon, so the stomach will stretch a little bit. That's why the the benefit of the balloon happens within six months. And that's after why that, you can't have the hot fudge sundae. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay. That's right. That's why well, wait the, six months. <laughs> however, it's that's down the line. There is balloons that we're going to use as a, in sequence. And in Italy, they've been doing that quite a lot, actually. So they put the first balloon in for six months. Patients lose significant weight. They give them a holiday for two, three months. The stomach shrinks back to its original size. And you put a second balloon, and you get an excess weight loss to the first procedure. So this is down the pipeline for now. It's one balloon, six months. And the key here is we're offering you six months of balloon, but also 12 months of behavioral modification treatment. This is the backbone of the success. You're going to lose the 30, 40, 50 pounds, but then you need to maintain them. And that's where we're going to give you through a 12-month period the tools that that are needed for you to succeed. So how well does it work? I mean, how much weight do most uh, patients lose? And why wouldn't everybody have this done? (laughs) I mean, two-thirds of the country could probably use a balloon. So the randomized control trials that uh, led to the FDA approval of this procedure uh, randomized about 270 patients in 50-50 distribution to either balloon or behavioral modification program alone. Those who get the balloon as well get the additional behavioral component uh, as the uh, similar to the control. Those who get the balloon lost three times the weight that the behavioral modification program allowed alone. So it's three times more weight loss. If you have to translate it to hard endpoints, it's about 15% of the total body weight. Equate that to pounds, about 30 to 40 pounds within the six-month period. But that behavior modification has got to be the key piece because I know when it comes to gastric bypass, there are many months of behavior modification work before and after. Mm -hmm. And I know in some places that aren't as wonderful as Mayo Clinic, Mm -hmm. they just give you gastric bypass and send you on your way. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that that might be something that would be a risk here is that somebody will just go get a balloon and not worry about the behavior modification. That's a risk, but as you as as you remember, Tracy, obesity is a big problem, and the the more streamlined the approach to obesity, the more patient that we could treat. That's why the behavioral modification program and the balloon program is is after the fact. So before the fact is you get you get the balloon, you're losing weight within the first six months, but then we have you for 12 months part of the program where really we are on your case every month to try to administer this behavioral modification program to teach you what's the cues that makes you eat, to how to adjust these cues, to to troubleshoot some problematic eating behaviors like uh, night eating and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's, I think the solution is we should make a program that's easy for the patient to follow and we should administer it over time rather than in a condensed period of time. So what about long-term follow-up? Have you had a chance to follow enough patients long enough to know that they're going to keep the weight off? Yeah. We have the, the advantage of this balloon. It's been used in Europe and Asia and South America for years now. We just made it, it came back to the U.S. through this FDA trial, but it's been, so we have the luxury of looking at outside of the U.S. data. And there's a few studies that showed 
up to 36 months the way it seems to be maintained. So it's, there's good data supporting that there is, there is, uh, there's maintenance of the weight loss, but the key is you have to follow the, the lifestyle intervention program uh, that comes along with the balloon. Are there any risks or are there some patients that this isn't going to work for? Risks are, are rare. Uh, so uh, as you could imagine, anytime we put a foreign body in the stomach, there's some nausea uh, and some abdominal discomfort that follows that. But usually these are uh, symptoms that resolve within a week or so after the procedure. And we treat these symptoms with anti-nausea medications and pain medications. Serious risks are very rare. I mean, I, had to, I, I was tasked by the American Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy to review all the outside literature for the balloon before the FDA approval. And incidence of something like a stomach perforating is less than 0.01. And most of these perforations happened in people with previous gastric surgery or previous stomach surgery, which are excluded from the U.S. population. So incidence of serious uh, risks are very rare. Wow. New, exciting, 15 minutes and you're done, stays in there for six months, and the weight loss is pretty impressive. Our guest, gastro- gastroenterologist, Dr. Barham Abudea. Thanks for being on the program, Dr. Abudea. Good to have you. My pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tracy. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we get a big picture look at obesity treatment in general from an expert on weight loss therapies. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. People struggling with obesity aren't the only ones who wrestle with the problem. Researchers and clinicians have been trying to understand why it is that some people gain so much weight and just don't seem to be able to lose it. One of those researchers is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Andres Acosta. Dr. Acosta has identified five categories of obesity in an effort to determine the most effective individual treatments. Welcome to the program, Dr. Acosta. Tracy, Dr. Shaif, thank you very much for having me. I'm, uh, I'm honored to be here and talking about obesity, which is uh, our passion and uh, what we're talking today. Thank now, you. we just talked about balloon therapy, and that is a treatment, a new treatment that's good for one of the five categories. But let's talk about those five categories. Sure. So, um, well, as we, as we know, uh, obesity is a metabolic disease with a strong behavioral content. So in our studies on here at Mayo, what we have done uh, after a study 500 uh, individuals from different types of body weight, we have subclassified obesity into five type of abnormal settings or abnormal characteristics. The first one is uh, problems with satiety. People have problems feeling full. The is second that because they eat too fast? Not necessarily. It's because the signal to the brain is, is delay, so it takes some time to tend to actually feel the fullness sensation. Okay. So the signal that, for that from your stomach up to your brain doesn't get there fast Correct. enough, and so they don't feel full. So you and eat that's more satiety. Correct. They, that's satiety. So you, feel yeah. more, you eat more calories before you feel full. And okay. we all like to be feeling full after a meal, <laughs> so that's something we like as a reward mechanism. The next uh, concept is uh, the concept of rapid gastric emptying. We found that people with obesity have a more rapid gastric emptying. So the time that the food to empty the stomach is faster. And when you say gastric, you mean stomach? The stomach. Correct. The food goes through their stomach too quickly, and so, quick. so they aren't full. They aren't full, correct. Why are some of the reasons why it does that? Well, we think there's a genetic composition that might be intervening to this. Some of the things might be... Um, hormones that play a role into this, and we're deficient in some of these hormones that slow down the way that we are stomach empty. Huh. And the stomach uh, empty is very important for digestion and breaking down of the food. So if we go very fast through it, food will go rapid to a small bowel, and we absorb more more calories. So, so far, we've got the people who don't feel full, full. like they should, or Correct. it takes longer for them Correct. to feel full. And then you've got the quick stomach emptiers. Correct. And then the next one also related with the stomach is the people who have a very large stomach. 
We don't know exactly why we're trying to study this, but they have a large stomach compared to the other two categories. And then we move a little bit more towards the behavioral component. So the fourth group is people who have, a, unfortunately, a behavioral problem. They either have food cravings or they have mood eaters or they're emotional eaters or those kind of people that we have identified have. And those are usually stress eaters as well or night binge eaters. So, those type of so people. the people who, who eat to feel better, no matter what the underlying Correct. emotional problem. Correct. Those who, who want to have a big meal because they feel happy or because they feel sad. Some people tend to call it food addiction. We don't like that term, but we try to walk away from that because food is something we need to, to do to live. Right. But it's those people who tend to have a behavioral problem or a psychological problem. And then the last group we are we claim to say is other. We don't know oh. what another 25% of the people have. And we'll be happy. We're doing studies right now to try to characterize those people. Are those people having a genetic background or a, the microbiome is now the new kid on the block? Uh, and other things that we're studying as well. So how has categorizing uh, obese patients into these different categories, how has that helped you? Well, it has helped us because now we can have identif- identify specific treatments to target each of these groups. For example, there's some drugs that affect more satiety. Others affect more the gastric emptying, as well as with devices. We'll have some devices that will help us more with satiety or with gastric emptying or gastric size or gastric volume. How do Individualized you, medicine, which yeah, very we've much talked so. about so many times it in this program. Correct. We're talking about precision medicine to the most common disease in the world, which is obesity. Well, how can you tell which one of these five a patient is? And which one is the most common? Well, this is, at this point, this is only experimental. Okay. We haven't translated this to the clinic yet. We're in the process of doing that. But uh, with basically two or three simple tests, the first one in questionnaires to know if they have behavior problems, a gastric emptying study, which we do very common for people who have problems with their stomach, or a satiety test, we can know which kind of characters you are. But again, this is only experimental at this point, but we're trying to move it into the clinic as quick as we can. You said which one is most common, and look into my cheat sheet, unfortunately, it's others, so they haven't been (laughs) classified yet. So there may yet be more categories of patients with obesity when you figure out uh, a category for these other patients. Agree, agree. There is still 25% of people who we don't know what they have, and we're trying to find that. So, but it's interesting that a fifth of, of patients, 20%, have this abnormal satiety, which means that they have difficulty feeling full. Correct. So let's talk about that, that category specifically. Do you have a medication that helps someone feel full? Correct. So there's already two medications in the market that are focusing only for satiety. The generic name is Locarserine, and the other one is Fentermin to pyramid extended release. And those medications are designed for satiety, where they work in your brain and they're all exclusive there. And what is interesting, and we have shown from our studies, is that when you select only this group who has a satiety problem and nothing else, they lose double the amount of weight with these medications that you give to the other four groups. Really? Now, in this category, is this a category that you can diagnose just by history? Or do you uh, do some sort of study that shows that the food comes out of the stomach too fast? Correct. We do actually a feeding study. We do an all-you-can-eat buffet. We invite other participants to eat as much as they can, and we measure how many calories they eat in one sitting until they feel full. And they tell us that. And from knowing what is normal within these 500 individuals, we can identify if you are in a normal or abnormal satiety. Guess what, Tom? It was a buffet of kale. Nothing but kale. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was wishing we'd been invited. Now I really don't care. (laughs) You mentioned microbiomes, and we talked about microbiomes with a guest a couple of weeks ago. How does that fit into the research that you're doing the study of micro, the microbiome. Well, we know that the microbiome plays an essential role in our environment and interactions with our genetics as well as with our food. Uh, there was a paper last week which showed the interaction of the microbiome and with cholesterol and BMI 
which only says around 6% of the contribution is the microbiome. It's hard to tell right now, us and many people in the world are trying to identify the role of the microbiome, but we know that our interaction with bacteria is essential for digestion. So I think more to come in the near future about this. The second category, second largest category is 14%, and they're the people who have the larger stomach. How do you figure out the, the patients that have a larger stomach, and what do you do for them? So what we do for them is do we, we have two different tests. One is a gastric emptying scintigraphy. We basically give you a meal with radioactive material, and we take multiple pictures, and then we see how fast your stomach empty in a period of time. We tend to use this test for other patients, which are, such as gastroparesis, which is the, slow, the delay of the stomach. Uh, in this case, we use it the other way, and we see that patients with obesity empty the stomach more rapidly. And so where does the balloon surgery fit in? Well, balloon will fit into many of these three categories, the main three. Uh, patients with satiety, patients with a gastric emptying, as well as patients with a large gastric volume. The most important group for the balloon will be the gastric emptying because we have data that supports that already uh, done by Dr. Abudeya and, and colleagues who have, will show this, uh, recently published this. But we think it will also affect other areas, such as especially satiety as well as uh, the gastric volume of the patients. In all of your, your research, and it's pretty impressive what you have done to date, have you, have you come to any conclusion about why obesity is such a problem? Well, it is a problem not because we have gained the weight, but it's because we have difficulty losing the weight that we have gained. And there's a lot of metabolic changes that don't allow us to lose the weight when we decide to. And then is when we need to use these tools, such as the balloon, to help us lose weight and maintain their weight off. I've heard it said on this program, prior guests have said that the key to losing weight is diet. The key to keeping the weight off is exercise. Agree. But unfortunately, when we only do diet and exercise, there's a lot of metabolic changes that doesn't allow us to stick to the diet and to stick with the exercise program. So people don't fail their diets because they are lazy or because they don't have willpower. People fail their diet because we have hormonal changes in our body that are fighting against us and our process of starvation. So we need to have these tools to help us, tools such as strong behavioral program that we have in our program, tools such as a medication, tools such as a balloon, or a tool such as aggressive as bariatric surgery. All are tools that help us stick to a diet and an exercise program. Thank you very much, Dr. Acosta, for bringing us up to date on the different types of treatment for obesity. Dr. Andres Acosta is a gastroenterologist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much. Thank you very Good much. Good to have you. Thank you very much for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we've been hearing about physical procedures for weight loss, but what about the mental preparation? We'll hear from an expert in fully preparing for successful weight loss. And low testosterone. It isn't just a man's problem. We'll hear about low T in women from a women's health specialist. If you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Thanks to better detection, the number of low-risk thyroid cancer cases is on the rise. I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Low risk because they don't cause symptoms and likely won't ever cause harm. But surgery could. Mayo researchers say perhaps renaming these lesions to something other than cancer could save unnecessary surgeries. It is hurricane season and a good time to think about what to do in a weather emergency. Flashlights, batteries, and canned goods. Here's Mayo Clinic dietitian Emily Brantley. We want to make sure that we have our canned goods on hand, and this includes proteins, for example, canned chicken, canned tuna, canned beans. And don't forget a fresh supply of water. 
flu season is on its way, and researchers show the vaccine reduces flu-related deaths in nursing homes. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, earlier in the program, we heard about a number of procedures and medications that are designed to treat obesity. But what about the mental side of the weight loss equation? Is there a state of mind that's helpful, maybe even necessary, in order for a weight loss therapy to be successful? Here to talk about preparing mentally for weight loss is Dr. Karen Grothy. Dr. Grothy is a psychologist at Mayo Clinic, and she helps people before and after weight loss surgery. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Grothy. It's great to have you here again. Thank you so much for having me back. You've got a huge job, don't you? I mean, a lot of obese people in this country, all different modalities to help uh, help them lose the weight, and you see them beforehand, and then you help them make sure they keep the weight off. That's what we try to do. So I call it my job security. <laughs> yeah, no, There's a lot it. of work out you there. You have got it, don't you? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so what's the first thing you tell people who come to you and they want to lose weight? What do you tell them? What do you talk to them about? Well, a variety of things. But, um, you know, I usually start with asking people what's really motivating them to think about weight loss. Because what's motivating the patient to think about weight loss isn't always the same thing as maybe what the physician, why the physician wants them to lose weight. So I'll hear all kinds of different things about mobility and making travel easier and being a good role model for kids or grandchildren. And that usually sets the tone for a discussion about um, how people want to lose weight, what's the best fit for them at this time in their lives. So it's sort of like smoking, huh? Mm-hmm. If, if the patient isn't motivated to quit smoking, there's mm-hmm. probably not much hope. Mm-hmm. Well, I wouldn't say, I would never say not much hope, <laughs> but I would say it's probably a different approach. If they're not very motivated right now, some patients will tell me, I'm just here because my doctor told me to be here. Mm-hmm. I'm not really wanting to be here. And so then we'd take a different approach in, in just laying the groundwork for when it is the right time for you, here's the options that are available or things that might be helpful. And we can take an approach that's called motivational interviewing or motivational enhancement, where we try to get them talking about reasons they might want to change. And sometimes that'll light a a spark or a fire under somebody to try to start making some change. And then other people that are more ready, then we can get them into really structured programs and start supporting them in making the changes they're ready for. Dr. Abudaya said that it's, you know, if you go the balloon route and you have that surgery, you have the balloon in your stomach for six months, but then there's also six months of training with you. I would say. And is that six months, is that before the balloon surgery or after it? When does that time work fit in? Well, with the balloon, we're doing things a little different in that um, people will get the balloon placed. They'll meet with each discipline before they get the balloon placed. But then they'll get the balloon placed, and that's when they'll start the Healthy Lifestyle Change Program. So hopefully they're getting some support from us during the six months while they have the balloon, but then also really especially the next six months after the balloon has been removed, and you don't have that assistive device there, but you still need to be making those lifestyle changes. Is seeing the the results, actually losing weight, that in in itself is sort of motivational, isn't it? I mean, isn't that part of the reason that the balloon works so well is because the patient says, guys, this is working. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I've tried to lose weight all my life and I can't Mm -hmm. do it. And so that's further motivation to keep losing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. For some people getting a jump start on weight loss kind of no matter how they do it, but we would always say in a healthy way, because there's a lot of things out there that would advertise quick weight loss that 
are not healthy. But getting a jump start on weight loss can really be helpful to people. I think the other people that might do well with the balloon are those that really struggle with feeling full. I don't feel full very easily. I feel like I need a large volume of food to feel full. Well, now we've got a balloon in there taking up some of that space. And so hopefully those satiety signals are strengthened, and that will really help them see some success. Do you help people set weight loss goals? And if so, I mean, do you try to get down to ideal weight, or does it depend on where they start, or how do you set those goals? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. We were just talking about goal setting in my weight group today, and many people thinking about weight loss have unrealistic goals. So you check out at the grocery store, you turn on late night TV, they'll tell you, hey, you can lose 20 pounds and you don't have to change anything, right? Mm -hmm. Do it next month. It's easy. So we get these unrealistic goals or ideals in mind. I want to weigh what I did when I graduated high school or when I got married. And we know the body changes a lot as we age. And so that may not be realistic anymore. So we try to set realistic goals. But I like people to focus their goals on behavior. Because they have a lot more control over behavior than they do over the scale. So if I set a goal saying, I want to walk for 20 minutes three times next week, I have a lot more influence over that than if I say, I want to lose two pounds this week. Because there's other factors playing a role there. So we try to get them to set behavioral goals that are short-term and long-term and that are realistic but just a little bold. So if 20 minutes three times a week is, is a good change for me, I'm going to come back and say, I feel really good about meeting that goal versus setting something saying, you know, well, I'm going to do five minutes three days a week next week. If that was so easy, I'm not going to feel as good about it and not as motivated. I want to play devil's advocate here for a second because there's the gastric weight loss and or the gastric surgery and there's this balloon surgery and there's just all these different ways that we're kind of trying to sneak or trick our way into tricking your body into losing weight. And I think that there has to be some people out there saying, just don't eat as much. When you have that little you know, devil sitting there talking on your shoulder, how hard is it for patients when they come in to see you to just move past that? That can be hard, and especially if the patient has someone in their support network who is kind of has those thoughts or that attitude. That can be difficult. But I think what we're really learning about the physiology of weight is that, you know, if, if you do start to get to a higher weight, it can be harder to lose weight. And we need different options because our physiology is trying to keep us at our higher weight. So maybe if I get to that point, I need something that affects those gut hormones telling me I'm hungry, the ones telling me I'm not full yet. And so it's kind of nice now that we've got really a breadth of options, anything from lifestyle changes that I do on my own versus Weight Watchers or adding in groups, behavior change groups like we have, to weight loss medications, endoscopic procedures like they were discussing today, and the bariatric surgery. And it really is what fits the individual, both medically and psychologically. What, do most patients come to you on their own, or do they come because their physician sent them to you because the physician said, you know, he or she has to lose weight? And if it's the former group, they come on their own, are they more successful? Oh, that's a great question. That's <laughs> Probably a great haven't question. studied that yet. Huh? Well, you know, most people that I see come from their physician because yeah. we do want patients to be seen by their physician first to make sure that weight loss is safe. 
for them. And becoming more physically active is safe for them. If they haven't had a medical evaluation, I'd be a little nervous about, you know, getting someone started on those things. But um, I think you're kind of referring to the idea of kind of the internal motivation versus the external motivation. And I think we all have components of both. But I think we do know that people who are kind of more internally motivated by things or get to that point do tend to do better in the long run. But at least even if their doctor sent them, at least they showed up for the appointment. Absolutely. Yes, I'll take it. (laughs) And as always, we'll say behavioral change is the key. That's that's why they need to come to you. Mm hmm. And that's really the key to the long-term success. And that's what eludes most people. Even if we think about these medications and procedures, short-term outcomes look pretty good. And the question is always the long-term outcome. And that's where we've really just got to have those changes in our day-to-day life. Are charts, graphs, diaries, are those helpful to, to people when they're trying to lose weight? Food diary is the single best predictor of who loses weight in almost any study. Food diary. Food diary rises to the top. People moan and groan, but it is one of the single strongest behavioral tools we have. So if I was giving a dose of a medication, the strongest dose I have is the food diary at least three days a week and being very complete. So actually write down what you eat or, or have eaten. Measure it out. Figure out the calories. There's a lot of tools and techniques to make that easier these days and it doesn't mean you have to do it the rest of your life but most of us are just not fully aware of how many calories we're eating or where they're coming from and this really shows us that good to know food diaries key we've been talking about the mental preparation needed for successful weight loss with dr karen grothy dr grothy is a psychologist at mayo clinic thanks for being here thank you thank you Karen. we're going to take a short break when we come back treating low testosterone isn't just for men women can also have low T. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. When we think of testosterone, we usually think of men. After all, it is a male hormone. You don't have any. I well, think actually, I do. Yeah, you do have a little oh, bit. Good. All right, Women good. have testosterone, too, and it does play an important role in female metabolism. Low testosterone levels, sometimes called low T, can cause a number of problems in women, including low libido, poor bone health, and a lowered tolerance for pain. Good thing you've got a little. <laughs> I guess. So if you're a woman and you suspect you have low T, what should you do? Well, here to answer this and other questions about low testosterone levels in women is Dr. Stephanie Fabian. Dr. Fabian is a specialist in general internal medicine and preventive medicine, and she's also director of the Women's Health Clinic at Mayo. Welcome to the program, Dr. Fabian. Nice to have you. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Isn't the main problem with low T that men have low T, and it's the most important problem in the history of medicine, is men's low T? Well, one would think, wouldn't wouldn't they? (laughs) Yes. Well, so testosterone for women is a little bit different. So we all have testosterone, as you mentioned, but our levels as women tend to decrease between the ages of 20 and 40 by half. So just like men, we have a slow decline in our testosterone levels with age. As opposed to estrogen, which we just sort of fall off a cliff at menopause and really lose estrogen, testosterone doesn't do the same thing. It just continues to slowly creep down on the levels, but never really hits a zero mark and we never fall off a cliff like menopause. 
But there are some circumstances where we lose testosterone abnormally. So take, for instance, when a woman has both ovaries removed before the natural age of menopause, she's also losing about 50% of her androgen production. And while testosterone is an androgen, there are a couple of other androgens in women too, like DHEA. But when we talk about androgens, we're mainly talking about testosterone in women. So we lose about half of it when we have our ovaries out early. So that would be one circumstance where we would consider, gosh, maybe is it a good thing that we give that back if it's missing? Well, that's interesting because you think of male, of, of testosterone being a male hormone. I mean, after all, it's it's what makes us so buff looking, and it gives us these <laughs> anger management issues <laughs> oh, and this strong sex drive. Wait, they, hold it, on a second. Does that mean that men have estrogen? Well, they I do. hope not. A little bit. Really? A yeah. little bit. A mm-hmm. very small amount. That's why you're so it's sensitive. It's undetectable by blood tests. <laughs> <laughs> But the other interesting thing is that you, you we know, most men know, and, and women, that the hormone testosterone is produced by the gonads, and you women don't have the same equipment that we have, so you wouldn't think that, that women have any, but actually you're saying that it's produced we, in the ovary. We do have gonads. They're just inside. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just a and, and they still produce some uh, some testosterone. They do. And the adrenal gland also produces mm-hmm. a little bit? That's exactly. Um, exactly so when right. you have your ovaries out uh, early on, you most of those women do require a uh, testosterone supplement? I wouldn't say that most of them do, but I think it's a consideration if, for instance, that woman who has gone through an early menopause because she had her ovaries removed, we give her estrogen back and she still has symptoms. And those symptoms might not know, might not only be a low libido, it could also be that hot flashes and night sweats don't go away with what we th- should we think should be enough estrogen. So you do estrogen supplementation. Do you do testosterone supplementation? We can. Hmm. We can. Now, unfortunately, there is no FDA-approved product available for women in the United States at this time that's a testosterone product. So at this point, the only thing that we have is we can make it in a compounded farm compounded form through our pharmacy. So they can make it up for us, and we can make it in a very weak concentration. So in other words, the products that are available for men, you've heard of several gels and that sort of thing, they're about 10 times what a woman needs. So it's hard to get the kind of doses that we would use in women from that. You would have to try to take a tenth of it, and it's just so hard to do that. That's why we end up making it. Can you measure a tes- the testosterone level so you can actually tell if a, if a woman or a man uh, is low on testosterone? We can measure, but those measurements are not accurate for defining low testosterone in women. So the the levels, as you might expect, are very low for women, and that has made through the last year's measurement difficult. We are getting to where we can sort of measure those levels in, in smaller numbers now, but what's not known is a certain number where below this number you are testosterone deficient. So there's no androgen deficiency syndrome in women. So we go by symptoms. And then generally we would treat, say, that woman who had her ovaries out early or even a postmenopausal woman with low sexual desire. We would consider using a little bit of testosterone to see if that helped the situation. Before you use the little pink pill, the new little pink pill? Bef- well, in certain circumstances. <laughs> but that's that little pink pill, what we're talking about is flibanserin, the new drug that was approved by the FDA recently for low sexual desire. We would not use that w- that drug in postmenopausal woman, women. That's just for pre menopausal women. Now, some of the danger of having low estrogen, and I know that bone health has to do with part in that. Um, What are some of the dangers of having low T? 
Well, the the only defined reason to take it as low sexual desire okay. at this point, and that's by the Endocrine Society, they have not defined a, another definition. So there is no low bone density, oh, you need testosterone, or uh, it improves well-being. There have been studies done, but there's there's really nothing out there to say that this is the answer. You mentioned that uh, the decision to treat someone with uh, testosterone is pretty much based on the history and the, and the symptoms. So run over the symptoms again for us of, of a, a typical woman with low testosterone, other than decreased libido. It's really going to be a low, low libido that we go for in terms of targeting a symptom. And other than that, it's going to be the woman who has lost ovarian function for whatever reason, who isn't responding fully to what we think should be enough estrogen. So it could be hot flashes and night sweats, but mo- mainly what uh, T targets would be low sexual desire. So maybe uh, people who suffer from low testosterone maybe were a little bit excited when they saw that phlebanserin was being approved, but unfortunately, Unfortunately, that's a group that can't use it yet. Yet. Is that something that's going to be addressed or being studied? I'm sure studies are going to be done. That's the most logical thing. If I were that drug company, (laughs) I'd be doing studies in postmenopausal women, and I'm sure that's what they'll go for next. It's been a couple of weeks since the FDA approved the little pink pill. Have you had patients asking you about it? Surprisingly, I have not yet, but uh, there is an educational um, packet that physicians need to go through or any prescribers that includes pharmacists, uh, any dispensing or prescribing providers have to go through a training session first. We have a question from one of our Periscope viewers who wants to know if you have been identified through genetic testing as being BRCA positive for a breast cancer risk, should you be concerned about your low testosterone? Should you want to do something about it? Well, I think the bigger question is probably should you have concerns about taking testosterone if you've had breast cancer? And yes, there are some concerns about that. Um, There have been studies done which are conflicting, so there may be the question of whether testosterone increases your risk of breast cancer. And the reason for that is testosterone can convert to estrogen. So when we give a woman testosterone, we might actually be increasing her estrogen, and that may not be good for breast cancer survivors. So I would say that's probably not a group that we would want to consider for testosterone therapy. So low testosterone in women, you've told us that it's not really measurable or the measurement isn't that accurate uh, if you if you do a blood test. But the indications are for younger women who have had their ovaries removed when they're when they're young uh, and for postmenopausal women with low sex drive main indications correct yeah I would say those are the main indications there are a couple of other conditions where uh, say for instance the adrenals are lost for one reason or another that we might consider it as you mentioned the adrenals are the other big source of uh, androgen production in women and there are some other cases uh, that are a little more rare, shall we say. Um, But one correction, so testosterone levels being low, we can measure them, and we do measure them, and when we put someone on testosterone, we do follow those levels, but they just don't help us define who is low in testosterone or who has an androgen deficiency. We've been talking about low testosterone levels in women with Dr. Stephanie Fabian. Dr. Fabian is a specialist in general internal and preventative medicine at Mayo Clinic, and she is director of the Mayo Women's Health Clinic. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Fabian. Thank you so much for having me. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs.
Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.